Good morning, everyone. Well, good morning. It's great to be with you here today. I do want to reiterate the Community Serve Day next week. Uh, you can get your swag in the back if you uh, maybe have participated in the past and you have a t-shirt from the past that still works, you can use that one. Or if you need to get a new one uh, it, because you've lost a ton of weight or got all ripped this year, or whatever it is, uh, we uh, have new shirts for you. And uh, if you've never participated in Community Serve Day, we'd love for, for uh, you to join us uh, we uh, have, uh, I think, over 300 and some uh, spots for service uh, throughout the community. Uh, everything from the local schools uh, to some beach cleanup and doing stuff for our first responders. So there's a, a, a wide variety. You can sign up as a family, a life group, or whatever. It's a great event. So that's next week. So we are gathering next week. It's just, in a way, we're gathering together scattered throughout the community. So respond.church, sign up for your spot. If all the spots fill and in then you have to come to my house and pull weeds. So that's the, that's the last project we opened up. So, um, and that one doesn't open until everything else is filled. So, you know, depends on what you want to do. But anyway, <laughs> uh, let's pray as we get started with this morning. God, we thank you so much for today. And uh, we thank you that you are present with us. As the words, the songs that we sang as we began today, to be reminded of who you are and that you reign above everything. So Lord, for some of us in here this morning, we are asking you to reign above maybe some hard times we're going through, uh, feelings of some depression or anxiety or just life hitting us. And for some are here today celebrating and we feel the joy of life and God, you reign over all of it. And so we thank you for that and we know you're here. We ask that you make us aware of your presence. And as we look into your word, God, would you open our hearts, every one of us, whether it's for the first time or for the thousandth time, Lord. We want to hear from you today. Transform us, change us into your image. We thank you and give you in your, this time in your name. Amen. I want to open, uh, invite you to open your Bibles to the book of John, chapter 1. That's where we're at. And we'll be getting to that in just a moment. Have you ever had something where uh, you were enjoying a certain version of it and you thought it was the best thing ever until someone introduced you to an even better version of that? Uh, maybe a, a, an example of that could be uh, our kids. You know, they were introduced to the Star Wars, Star Wars world of, with these new movies or alleged movies about Star Wars. And they see it and they think, oh, this is so cool. And then we get to have that moment where we're like, well, we want to show you the real thing. The real Star Wars made in 1976. Somehow that's better. The real version. For some of you, maybe we know Pastor Felipe. He's, he's hey, Chick-fil-A sandwiches are the best thing ever. He calls it manna from heaven. He, he, he thinks this is the Lord's gift to us. And I said, but Felipe, have you tried a Popeye's chicken sandwich? As soon as you do that, then your eyes, wow, the hate in this room, man. <laughs> I know I'm not supposed to say that in church, but, you know, Popeye's versus Chick-fil-A, but... Uh, <laughs> But sometimes there's a better version. I remember uh, when I was uh, in college and I was into snow skiing, so I love uh, snow skiing. I was up in Washington State. Uh, there was no mountains or anything that I wouldn't love to go down. I love no matter how steep, fast, all of that. But in the summer, uh, up there at least, it was about being on the lake. It was about water skiing and inner tubing back in the day. That's what it was. And I never really got into water skiing. I kind of, I didn't think it was that fun. 
and it was just, it felt kind of boring to me. I wasn't very good at it. And one day, we were at the lake, and uh, one of the executives for K2, which is a sports company, I used to demo skis from, he was there, and um, he, was, he was in the boat, and he said, hey, Ryan, we want to, we just, they were a season where they were acquiring new sporting companies, and he said, hey, try this. And he pulled something, he threw it out to me, and there's this giant board that now we know of as a wakeboard. At the time, I don't even know if he knew what he was calling it. He said, we're, we're going to get into making these. And they, I don't think, ever did a good job of doing that. But at the time, he gave me that. He said, try this. And I saw it, and I thought, oh, now this is my style. I, I used to skate. I was, this, this, to me, makes more sense than water skiing. There's a lot of potential in this. And I strapped it on, and no one there knew what to do with it. Uh, but, you know, we hit go. For, fortunately, I got up the first time and started going. I had plenty of falls. But immediately, I realized how much better of a version than water skiing this was. I could jump, I could learn to spin, even do flips, which I've landed on my head more time than on my feet behind them, but still, it was just, all of a sudden my world was opened up. There was a better version that I had to see, and as soon as I experienced it, I had to tell my friends, have you tried wakeboarding? Have you seen this thing? This is so much better than going back and forth behind a boat. Water skiing. Sorry, those of you who are water skiers. It was so much better. We're, get, we're gonna look, we're continuing our series in the book of John today, and we're seeing as we, we're gonna be introduced again to Jesus, and we're gonna find today is a story of the first disciples who were called to follow him. And how what they were waiting for and looking for, they were hearing these stories and they're wondering about one day if this Messiah will come to them. And, and they were talking, is it this person? Is it this person? And they're introduced to the real thing. And everything opened up. And through the story today, what you'll see is when they were introduced to the real thing, they kept going with these three words that we're all invited to do even today. And it was, as soon as they experienced Jesus, they went to their friends and said, come and see for yourself. Come and see. So much better than anything we could have expected. And so today we're going to look at John's version of the calling of the disciples. And we're going to respond to those words, come and see. Now, when we get into the story today, maybe for some of you, you're familiar with scripture. You've heard the story of the disciples. Maybe you I've heard the stories for years, and often, when we think of when Jesus calls his disciples, we remember this version of it, which the other writers talk about. Jesus is walking along the sea. He sees some fishermen. They're fishing. He says, hey, come follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And they say, sounds good, Jesus. They drop their nets and follow him. Anyone know that version? That's like the version that pops in our head first and foremost, right? He walks by a tax collector named Matthew. He's, Matthew's at work. He comes up to him and says, hey, Matthew, come follow me. Matthew closes the door and says, let's go. And that's how it happens. Every time I heard that story growing up, I think, wow, what great faith. Until I got older and I thought, wow, just, there's a lot of loose ends there. <laughs> what, what did they do? And they worked for their dad. Their dad was a fisherman. Could you imagine being the dad? They're like, see you, dad. We're following Jesus. Like, Who? <laughs> Wait, can you at least clean up? Like, what's going on here? What I love about John's version of the story is he actually gives us more details. He gives us the backstory. He starts to make it more, make the story make 
more sense. Because the other gospel writers of Matthew and Luke and Mark, as they describe this, their story is true. It did happen that way. But it happened after what John is going to tell us about today. That they were already introduced to Jesus in other ways. There was something that led up to that event. It still took great faith. I don't want to ruin that part of it. It still was a dramatic moment, but it makes more sense in light of today's story. So let's jump in. John chapter 1, and uh, we are in verse 36. Now, where we are at this point, the author John uh, started off the first week we looked at this. He kind of proclaimed who Jesus is and said he is the son of God. He's the eternal one. He's now here. He's the light of the world. Last week, we were introduced to a guy named John the Baptist. It's a funny last name, the Baptist. But uh, so John the Baptist uh, proclaimed who Jesus was. He was preaching out in the wilderness. And uh, many said he's uh, one of the prophets, or is he a forerunner to the Messiah? Who is this person? They said, are you the Messiah? Because the way he was preaching and teaching with power and calling people to repent. And John the Baptist said, no, I'm not the one you're looking for. It's Jesus. And here he is. And, and we heard last week as uh, John the Baptist actually baptizes Jesus. And he has this experience where he hears this voice from heaven saying, this is my son of God in whom I'm well pleased. And this, he sees some sort of symbol of a spirit descending upon him. And in that moment, John the Baptist says, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Okay, that's where we are. That's the first two weeks. Now, let's pick up where we are today. Verse 36. Again, the next day, so this is the day after Jesus' baptism, John the Baptist was standing with two of his disciples. So he had followers of his own who were listening and learning from him. And he looked at Jesus. So John the Baptist sees Jesus as Jesus walked towards him. And he said, behold, the Lamb of God. Now, we didn't really double-click on that as much last week, so I want to talk to you just a moment about how profound that statement is. That when he looks, and once again, the second week in a row, he proclaims the Lamb of God, that was a loaded statement. What really he's referring to is uh, all throughout the Old Testament, through the Hebrew Scriptures, there's an expectation that God would one day send this person called the Messiah. Messiah literally in Christ, it means the anointed one. It was a belief that God was sending somebody to come and save Israel, to redeem Israel. Now we have in Isaiah chapter 53, in verse 7, I want to show you some of the, this is a famous chapter that prophesied and talked about the Messiah who would one day come. And this is some of the words that were said. And it sounds past tense, but this is how the prophecy was spoken about the coming Messiah. It said, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. Keep that in mind. Uh, skip down to verse 10. It says, it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And the Lord makes his life a guilt offering. Again, keep in mind that guilt offering. Circle that if you like to take notes. Down, down to the next verse, verse 11. After the, Messiah su after the suffering of his soul, he will see the light and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant, that's again that uh, Messiah, will justify many and he will bear their sins. 
So this is in Isaiah, this is a prophecy about what they're expecting, about a Messiah. There's this language about Lamb of God, guilt offering, taking away sins. And this was a very confusing chapter to the Israelites. They would say, well, what does this even, how can this mean? Who is this servant? What will that look like? But there's expectation, an interesting thing, that the Messiah is described as the Lamb of God. Now, if we back up in history of Israel a little bit more to Exodus chapter 12, we find this thing called the Passover that maybe many of us are familiar with. And the Passover was as uh, Israelites were in slavery in Egypt, and they were about to be led out of Egypt, um, out of slavery, out of Pharaoh's hand in his oppression, God sent a series of different plagues. Well, the last one was uh, this plague of the, for the firstborn, and they would kill a Passover lamb, God instructed them to, as a sacrifice to take the blood of that lamb, put it on their doorpost, and God would pass over them and spare their lives. From that point on, the Israelites every single year in the Jewish faith until this day continue to celebrate Passover. It's a reminder every year of the bitterness of slavery but being set free by God. So that's what the the festival is about. It's a festival of being set free. It's freedom because of God's deliverance. And the Passover lamb was the symbol of that, that the blood that would be shed would provide for them until next year. So, there's this, so now if we go back even further, Genesis chapter 3, the very ver- first sin in the Bible that we uh, read about is an animal is killed to provide clothing to cover the shame. Sin- uh, nakedness symbolized innocence. As soon as they realized they were naked, they felt guilt and shame. And they, God kills an animal to cover the shame of the first people, Adam and Eve, when they sinned. So there's a symbol from the very beginning of the biblical story of sin results in the shedding of blood to cover your shame. As that progression went on, God was saying, this is only temporary. Animals won't actually cover your sin. Somebody has to come once and for all to take care of your sins. And it has to be someone who is pure and spotless, a pure spotless lamb like the Passover, but sufficient for humanity. So it's going to be God in flesh, my Messiah, my anointed one who I will send. So this is the progression of thought that now in Isaiah 53, by the time he writes this in around year 580 something is when this is written. And by the way, in first century, when Jesus existed, they had this thing called the Dead Sea Scrolls um, that we found uh, last century, and the entire Isaiah scroll has been found. So it's one of those that they, we have the evidence of this whole book of the Bible. And so we know that this writing was already in existence, so there was this belief, and we find even Jesus reading from the Isaiah scrolls constantly throughout his ministry. So what we have now is we know there's this belief in that this is something in there. Maybe they didn't understand who the Messiah would be or what that would look like. But the imagery of Lamb of God being for the suffering servant of Israel would be in their minds. And when John the Baptist sees Jesus and says, behold the Lamb of God, he's taking the whole Hebrew Scriptures, all the Old Testament, and saying, this is what we are waiting for. Here he is. He's the one. And if anyone who was familiar with scriptures would have been blown away by that statement. Are you kidding me? This is the Lamb of God, the one who will take away our sins once and for all. The 
better version of anything we've been waiting for. So now, back to this text, uh, John chapter 1. So he sees, he has a couple of his disciples. John the Baptist has some of his disciples. He says, look, the Lamb of God. Powerful statement. Verse 37. And the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Which, by the way, can you imagine? It's, you're some of the disciples. He says, hey, there's the Lamb of God. And they're like, hey, John the Baptist, it's been real. See you, man, we're out. We just found a better version. We found, if this is who we've been looking for, hey, thanks so much, but we're following this guy. And it says that they started following Jesus. I believe here they're literally just walking behind him going, are you kidding me? Is that the Lamb of God? That's a Lamb of God. Let's go. Let's follow him. Let's see what he's up to. And Jesus turns around and saw them following him. And he says to them, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Kind of an odd response, is it not? But Jesus starts, he sees them following. He says, what are you? you seeking? I believe this is a fundamental question we all need to address when we think of Jesus. The question what Jesus is really asking is this, what are you looking for? Why are you following me? What are you looking for? Are you looking for a magic genie in the bottle who will just grant your wishes and answer all your prayers and give you what you want? Is that what you want? Are you looking for someone who's going to have the next best, greatest teaching and, and these new ideas and something you can sit around and become smarter and smarter as in Scripture and go, wow, this, we're looking for a great teacher. What are we looking for? Or are you looking for the words that will, as we hear later in this, in this book, the words that actually bring life? We'll later find that Peter, when he's confronted, when all these others are walking away from Jesus, and Jesus says, are you going to leave too? And Jesus, Peter looked at Jesus and said, where would I go? Where would I find what I have found in you if I left here? What are you looking for? Is it purpose? Is it meaning? Someone to walk with you. Are you looking for the Messiah who's come to take away sins and not just forgive you so you can make it to heaven, but to give you a whole new way of living. What are you looking for? And they have this great response. Uh, uh, where are you staying? <laughs> I love it. Where, where, where are you staying, Jesus? In other words, we, we are not sure yet, but whatever we want to come, wherever you're going, we want to come. Wherever you're heading, we're with you. And I do believe there's, we're going to find later in the book of John, there's some play on words of this. Where are you dwelling? Uh, there's a lot about Jesus who is dwelling among us. We read that last week of he became flesh and dwelled, that same language here. And so where does Jesus dwell? By the end of today, you're going to see where Jesus is showing us. He's kind of intersection between heaven and earth. But there's this play on words even that comes up later in John chapter 15 where he says, abide in me, dwell in me, and I will dwell in you. So where are you dwelling? Where are you staying? And Jesus says this. Come, and you will see. In other words, come on. Come. And I don't think it's just about where you physically staying. There's something more. But he says, come and find out. Come and see. So they came with him, and they saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, and it was about the tenth hour. Now, verse 40, one of the two of them who heard John the Baptist speak and followed him, his name was Andrew. 
Later we'll, or in the other gospel accounts, we know that he's one of these fishermen. Andrew is Simon Peter's brother. So he went and he first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah. And he brought Peter, or Simon Peter, to Jesus. Jesus looks at him and says, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated to mean Peter. Now we get, again, a double click of Jesus doing that again later in Matthew 15, or 16. We hear the, uh, another occasion of that where he says, I want to call you Peter. The, again, there's a play on words here. Simon can mean pebble in Hebrew. Uh, Peter can mean rock. Petros, it's like this bigger rock. So he's making an identity statement to Simon right here at the beginning. But notice what happens is Andrew is with someone else who they, they're following. They're listening to John the Baptist. They're told there's a Lamb of God. They start following him. So it's already been on their mind. They've already been talking about, well, who would the Messiah be? I wonder when he'll come. Is this the time? We heard about this guy preaching out in the wilderness who's proclaiming repentance of sins. Could that be the Messiah? So some of them went down and started learning from John the Baptist and listening to him. When they finally said, he says, no, not me, but that guy, Jesus, is the Messiah. They began following him, and what's he do? The first thing he does is he goes and finds his brother and says, I think we found the Messiah. Come and see for yourself. Verse 43. So now we have Andrew and Peter are following. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. And he found Philip. And Jesus said to Philip, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. In a little backstory, uh, we believe that Philip was already friends, uh, already acquainted with, and working in the trade with Peter and Andrew. So it wasn't that Jesus was walking around saying, hey, there's another good-looking guy. Come follow me. No, this was, oh, you introduced me to another one of your friends. What's his name? Philip? Come here. Why don't you come follow me too, Philip? He's from Bethsaida, the same town, and, and it's right next to Capernaum, these two ancient uh, towns that are right near the Sea of Galilee. So he says, come and follow me. Now, uh, verse 44, Peter's from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Verse 40, 45, Peter, or sorry, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, finding a theme here, we have found him of whom Moses wrote in the law and the prophets also wrote. It's Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. So again, we found the one we've been talking about. We've been studying these scriptures. We've been looking for him. Moses wrote about a Messiah and, and, and predicted even through the, the Passover, gave us this. And now here's the one who's going to fulfill that. The prophets spoke of him. Isaiah spoke of him. We think we found him. He's Jesus, the son of Joseph. He's from Nazareth. Now look at this classic response that Nathaniel says. Can anything good come from Nazareth? What a great response, isn't it? When I was uh, preparing this message, I was trying to come up with a, a funny analogy. It would be like us saying, can it? but then I thought, there's no way I can do that without offending somebody, right? <laughs> the closest thing maybe would be, you know, whatever classic high school or college you went to. You know, my wife and I were University of Washington, so it could be, could anything good come from Washington State? Cougars. My brother went there. <laughs> Many speak of that, of maybe the... Uh, 
have attributed that to Nathaniel being maybe like a racist remark, but uh, they were, it was still a Jewish community. I don't think it was racist as much as it was maybe a socioeconomic statement. Maybe it was some sort of a rivalry. Nazareth, Nazareth at the time was a small village. Many of the people who came from there were working class, uh, did, did a lot of the stone cutting. Uh, we often call Jesus a carpenter, probably was actually like a stonemason. They would do quarries there, cut it out. In fact, a lot of the towns built around there for the Roman uh, government. We have Tiberias. There's a town called Sephorus. were often made with the labor that was coming from towns and villages like Nazareth. So perhaps it was saying, well, we're fishermen, but at least we're not stone cutters. There's something in that statement there. But he's saying, I don't know. Can anything good come from that small backwoods town? And look, then Jesus, Philip responds and says, I don't know. Just come and see for yourself. Just come and see. How many times when we're talking with other people, maybe you already believe and you're a follower of Jesus, and we feel so uh, convicted, like we need to convince our friends of all the truths about Christ. We need to have all the answers about Scripture and God. And if our friends ask us something like, well, what about this? We, we feel like, no, we, i, I got to be able to convince them that God is real and I have to have all my arguments in place. And, and I have to somehow, if I mess this up, they're going to miss the opportunity to know Jesus. But look how Philip, he gives us what I think is a great model of evangelism. I don't know. Come and see. Come check them out for yourself. Wouldn't it be great if, if that's the pressure we put ourselves on ourselves was just that? Of like, hey, I, I, I follow Jesus. He's made a difference in my life. And someone says, well, I don't agree with this and this and all these things about Jesus. And I don't know if I can follow him. And what if we just said, yeah, there's a lot of questions. But what if you just come and see? Just check them out. Have you ever given Jesus a chance or are you just starting like this? When, when you come and see. So Philip says, I, I don't know, Nathaniel. Come and see. And Jesus, in verse 47, Jesus sees Nathaniel coming to him and says, Here is truly an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. <laughs> what, what a great way to introduce this guy, right? The one who just said, Are, are you kidding? He's from Nazareth? Ah. Uh, I don't, I don't think I could ever hang out with a guy. And he comes around the corner, and Jesus sees him. He's like, oh, hey, look, a true Israelite. Now, there's some question about whether he's kind of poking at him a little bit. A question about whether maybe Jesus knows exactly what's on Nathaniel's heart. And he kind of goes there like, oh, yeah, you're, the, oh, you're so right. And you, there's no deceit. Wow, a true Israelite. In fact, we read on. Nathaniel says, how do you know me? How, wait, how do you know me? And Jesus says, hey, before Philip even called you, when you were sitting under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathaniel answered him and said, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Pretty easy to convince that guy, I guess, right? <laughs> I love Jesus, how he responds. He says, because I said to you that you're under the fig tree, do you believe? All right, you will see even greater things than these. I love that. Okay, what's about the fig tree is a question that will come up. Fig tree was often used in, uh, throughout the Hebrew scriptures, Old Testament, to refer, to relate to Israel. 
It literally was, when you talk about a new fig tree sprouting up, it was the language for Israel, it was about, it would produce fruit, all of these things. So the fact that he's sitting under a fig tree, Jesus calls that out, is just symbolic of saying like, oh yeah, you are truly part of Israel. And if you're truly part of Israel, you've been longing for the Messiah. If you're a really good Jewish kid, you probably know the scriptures. And in you, Jesus says, there's no deceit. This is actually quoting Psalm chapter 32, verse 2, where it says, How blessed is the man whose guilt the Lord does not take into account, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. So Jesus is actually, when he, hears, he knows Nathaniel's coming, he actually gives him some praise and says, Oh, I know you. Yeah, you care. You're, you're one of those persons who your guilt the Lord is not even going to take into account. You're a righteous one. You're trying to do what's right. In your spirit, there's no deceit, Nathaniel. That's you. I saw you sitting under the fig tree, symbolism of you are truly an Israelite. You are the example we all want to follow. And so Nathaniel says, okay, you are the son of God. I'm convinced. My guess is there's probably more to that conversation. We get the quick version. I'm sure there was a lot more like, let's go back to that, how, how you saw me again. What was that? Can you tell me what you did? How did you know I was there? But he responds and says, truly you are the son of God. And Jesus says, you believe just because of that? Oh, what you're about to see. It's going to be so much better. In fact, then he goes on and says this in verse 51. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened up and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. Make sense, right? Let's close in prayer and be done. All right. <laughs> what? You're going to see that heaven's opened up and angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. What is going on here? Most likely, uh, what Jesus is referring to is a story in the, in the book of Genesis with Jacob, and he has this dream at night of Jacob's ladder. And uh, in Jacob's that's what we call it, and in it, the angels are ascending and descending. And it's a place that... Uh, Jacob went on to call Bethel, or the house of God, and it was known, the symbolism that Jesus is referring to is, oh, the place, the intersection of heaven and earth. What he's really saying, you are going to see this intersection where heaven meets earth in the Son of Man. There's no separation. You're going to find in me where the whole realm of, as it is, you know, your will be done, as it is in heaven, is going to meet right here. Why does Jesus teach us to pray that way? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The intersection of heaven and earth now happens in Christ. He's that bridge. And he says, oh, Philip, what you're about to see is everything is going to be turned upside down. And in me, everyone will have access to this. Heaven has come. In the other words of Jesus, the kingdom of heaven is now upon you. So in Jesus, we have the glory of heaven has come down to earth. It's been made visible in the one who has become man. That's what we find. That's what we're going to see as we continue to study through the book of John. It's now, make no mistake of who this Jesus is. Every story now that we will see is in the light of this context of the Lamb of God 
the intersection of heaven and earth is now among us. So how do we respond? A couple questions for us. The first one is this. Respond by receive the invitation to come and see. Come and see. If you're here today and you say, well, I, I don't know if I believe everything about Jesus, or I have problems, I have questions, I'm not sure I can buy the whole story, I'm not sure about this Christ, or maybe you believe, but you kind of wandered away, and you're, you're thinking, oh, it's just hard for me to accept it all. Maybe Jesus is saying to you today, would you just come and see? Give me a chance. Give me a chance. And in me, you're going to see the intersection of heaven and earth. And it's going to be so much more than just being saved and rescued for some future date. But you're going to see how life will be turned upside down for you today, here and now. Come and see. The second response for us today is this. Can we be people who give the invitation to come and see? See, being a disciple of Jesus means that we want to be with him. We want to become like him, and we want to live as if he would live if he were us. That's what it means to be his disciple, his student. We are transformed into his image, into his likeness, and he invites us to come and see, so he's told us to be a part of this mission, to invite others to come and see. How many of us would, you don't have to raise your hand, would it feel so much easier if this was the beginning of evangelism? than memorizing all of the prophets and all of the apologetic arguments for the existence of God. Those things are good, and there's a place for them, by the way. It's really good to kind of dive deep and, and to sort things out, but I want you to know something. The Holy Spirit is a much better job, does a much better job of convicting and convincing people of his existence than you ever will. And that is freeing, amen? God uses people like me who I was going to tell you my SAT score, but I'm not going to today. I'll just tell you this. I got nearly perfect on the math side. And I still, I don't even know if I passed the SATs, if you can not pass them. God uses people like me. He doesn't need us to be brilliant. He doesn't need us to have all the answers. He doesn't need you to be sinless. He just needs your heart. He says, let me do the work of convincing and calling people. I'm going to use you. To make the invite. Uh, starting this week, we've done this the last several years during a, series, a, a, a time when traditionally on the church calendar is called Lent. We don't really practice a normal Lent here. We challenge you if you don't know much about it. It's a great practice that leads us up to Easter. But we do something here at Seacoast the last few years called the 714 Challenge. And we've done it every year the last several years leading up to Easter. 714 is based on 2 Chronicles 714 which says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, I will hear their prayers and heal their land. Paraphrase. So, beginning Wednesday, we're going to challenge you, would you begin every day at 7.14 to take a moment to pray as we prepare our hearts to celebrate Easter? And maybe there's one or two or three friends, or more, that you know that do not know Jesus, that you can lift them up every morning at 7.14. If 7.14 is too early in the morning for you, 7.14 at night works just fine, too. So beginning this week, set your alarms on your phones. If you, get out, if you take your phone out and do it now, I'm, there's no judgment. Do it now so you don't forget. 7.14 challenge beginning this Wednesday. Every morning, would you pray 
And maybe God will put someone on your heart that you can give the invitation to come and see. We're going to end our time with a response here and taking what we call communion. And I think what a great way to end the first chapter of the book of John. Such a great way to just go to these tables called communion, to remember the life, the death, and the resurrection of Christ. To remember when we go to the communion table that we are not just doing some sort of symbol, some sort of, oh yeah, this is a religious practice, but we are literally reminding ourselves that God is with us even to this day. We're reminding ourselves that of his presence now, but because of his life, his death, his resurrection, when we go to these tables to be reminded, that's what we do. And so I want to invite the, the band up as we prep for this time and in a moment, what we'll do is we're going to invite you to, today we're going to have you just go to the tables. You can go by yourself. You can go as a family, a life group, however you'd like to do it. And take the elements and feel free to spread out around the room. You may go back to your seat or wherever you want to do it. Take a moment to think, maybe pray, and take the communion elements on your own today, uh, wherever you are or as a group, but on your own timing during this last song. And then come back and let's respond to God with our worship with this final song. And as we go to the tables, we're reminded of the bread symbolizes the life of Christ. The life he lived, the death he died, and his resurrection. That when we speak of Jesus, the Son of God, that he was in the flesh and dwelled among us, it wasn't just a mythical story. This table reminds us that this is a real story that we believe and proclaim. As we take the juice this morning, it's a reminder of the blood that was shed, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world once and for all. Jesus says, in my blood is the, cov the new covenant, meaning a promise I am making with my people that what I'm about to do cannot be broken, it cannot be undone, you cannot out God's grace that it is for you today. So as we go to the table, we remember the life, the death, the resurrection of Christ, and we remembered that because of the blood that was shed, that it is finished, that you have new life in him. So during this last song, at your pace, feel free to go to the tables, take communion to remember the presence of Christ. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you so much. That as we look back into your scriptures, we look at these stories, we hear of how the world was waiting for you. They were anticipating you. They were pouring over their scriptures and the prophecies and wondering when the time will come. And Lord, you showed up at the right time. And Lord, here we are now, years later. We celebrate that you came. We celebrate your life. We celebrate your resurrection. And Lord, now we live in light of a new reality where heaven and earth have collided. So God, as we remember your life, your death, your resurrection, we remember that we are captured by your covenant, that nothing will take that away, Lord, which you set our hearts free. And for those who are still wondering about who you are today, Lord, would you encourage them to take the invite, come and see that you are good. So we thank you, Lord, and we ask that you move in this place as we respond to this last song.
your name, amen. So take communion. When you're done, come back and stand with us to sing that last song. God, we thank you so much for that truth that we proclaim today. That because of you, because of your life that you lived, because you came as a Lamb of God who takes the sins of the world away, because you are the intersection of heaven and earth, that our worlds are now changed and turned upside down because of that, that we are alive in you. So God, we pray uh, that as we go, would you remind us of your presence? you remind us that the victory is in you. Brothers and sisters of Seacoast, as you go, may you go now walking in newness of life through the power of the Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. And thanks again for coming out. Uh, If you made a decision for Christ, uh, if that's something you're processing, we'd love to meet you, talk to you about it. Uh, The other thing you can do, even those of you online, is you could go to respond.church. Let us know. There's a place to connect. Say you made a decision for Christ. We want to follow up and walk with you in that decision. Uh, The rest of you, 714, set your phones. Let's pray for someone who will come and see Jesus. Thanks for coming.